This session is brought to you by Zurich Life and Investments. These guys are one of the last true independent life insurers going around and they're Swiss, so you know their stuff is solid. These guys really understand and believe in the value of advice, which is why they invest in programs like this one and partner with groups like XY Advisor to help drive the positive evolution of financial advice in Australia. Their team are just really good people as well. So if you haven't already connected with them to learn more, check out their website or speak to your business development contact. This session is also brought to you by Sun Super. They're one of the fastest growing profit for members or industry funds in Australia. They were the very first of these funds to partner with advisors and they've got functionality where you can actually link to your client's Sun Super accounts and charge advice fees through the fund, as well as a number of uh, tech innovations to make it easier for you to work with your clients. They've got great investments, they're really, really cheap, and their team are just generally legends. So if you haven't already connected with Sun Super, give them a shout, because they're doing some really cool stuff. We're here with Alex Vigovich. Okay, fellas. What's happening? G'day. How we doing? G'day, USA. Good. Yeah, very ah. good. You're already doing the plugs for me. <laughs> That's it. How are you, mate? Very well, thanks. Had to uh, cross two bridges to get here, which is a real rarity for me. Um, <laughs> get the passports But, but worth it. I'm feeling very cool over here. You've got a great little studio here. I'm, I'm very proud of you guys. Thank mate, you. We're very excited about this studio. Yeah. yeah it's fantastic. It's pretty yeah. fun. I hear Clayton's going to uh, bust out some guitar moves soon. And That's right. Um, from uh, back in his, his past career. Absolutely. There's a handful of, of axes over there in the corner. Axes. There you go. He's got a, a new rap about mice as well. He's, uh, he's pretty keen to share. I have heard actually word spreading it's trending on twitter <laughs> yeah what's new in your world alex mate uh feeling pretty relaxed it's been a very big year um yeah. you know a lot yeah. going on in the space it's been quite heated to be honest particularly in the ifa space as you guys know i got home a year ago from the states and it's a pretty toxic environment over there um and got home around summer and everything was very relaxed and very happy to be back in australia and you know what it's like this time of year mm. in the silly season a uh, great feeling in the air and then as the year sort of took off, a lot of the uh, debates within financial services uh, seemed to get as, as heated as that election to some extent. Um, but it's been a good year and uh, I'm feeling positive about where things are going in, in our industry. Oh, I've noticed a bit of a correlation between the heat of the conversation and Alex being involved. I don't know if... Uh, <laughs> Agitate I think those much? Things are, uh, yeah, they're co correlated, not causally related. They're, um, yeah, look, yeah, there might have been a bit of agitation going on, but somebody's got to do it. Exactly. Hey. And a big year for IFAs. A lot of growth in the space and more and more you know, businesses going into that space. We are, we're we're seeing a bit of a, you know, uh, decoupling from the, the big sort of aligned institutions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this has been happening for a few years, but I think, um, you know, there's been a straw now that's broken the camel's back. I think a lot of businesses um, have realised, and it's not really a political thing, it's just people are trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of their business. Mm. And for a long time, um, advice practices have been used to being told what to do. Mm. Um, and I think they're not willing to cop it anymore. Um, and if you're, you've got an industry that's professionalizing, they're being forced to up standards or, or they're already highly educated, one of the two. Um, there's all this cool new technology emerging. So I think those things kind of go hand in hand, right? If you're driving a Ferrari because of investment commissions back in the old days, then you're willing to be told what to do by some guy in a boardroom because you're getting all the benefits of that. <laughs> but if you're... You know, driving it's a Mazda. Yeah, well, if you're, if you're doing it your it's own way. Right? Right? If you're driving a Ferrari out of fee for service, you're doing well. Um, and, um, you know, I think that if you're going to take all the, you know, the, the bad sides of running the business on board, 
then you want the upsides and the upsides are choosing things like what technology you can do um, who you want to outsource your investment to or, or how you want to run your portfolios how as it may be um, so I think that's why I think it's a natural sign of professionalization which is can you be a professional in those traditional models I think it's pretty difficult um, uh, unless they change, you know? So yeah, there has been this real movement towards, I guess, the broader independent space. Although of course there's fewer and fewer people that are allowed to call themselves that, which is its own, yeah. uh, kettle of fish. But, um, so would you then, say 2018 is the year of the middle finger maybe for advisors discovering I think, I think it it's been more? a decade of middle finger. But it's, uh, <laughs> um, Wait, to us or to... <laughs> no, no, I think it's now, it's, uh, look, I do. I think it's, it's, it's a middle finger in that. Um, I think sometimes advisors and intermediaries in general, you know, they can forget that they're consumers too, you know, and I think yeah. that what we're seeing is um, clients have taken greater, you know, uh, sovereignty over their own affairs and advisors are doing that as well. Um, and they want to make their own decisions um, and they're not willing to be told what to do. And they're, they're realizing they have purchasing power. And so when it comes to things like funds management and technology and platforms, you know, advisors are really lucrative consumers mm, but they yeah. don't often think of themselves that way and i think they've taken a bit of that power back and said hey we're consumers too it's us and clients versus the rest and i think that's healthy that's it yeah and i think it's you know i, I know that a lot of the bigger players that they're sort of they're they're coming up with initiatives and and they realize that this is an issue but i think that they seem to be quite slow to to react slow to implement change and it makes sense that if you've got a you know, thousands of advisors licensed under your business that it's going to take longer to find something that works for everybody and yeah. works from the business side of things as well. So um, these days, I think we're seeing, you know, more and more change and it's happening faster and faster, especially with technology. So it makes it a little a little difficult for the bigger players to, to keep up. And I think if you're nimble and you're, you're small, you sort of got that advantage that you can implement things and, mm. and make changes. Absolutely. And I think look, it, it's, it's partly, it's just their nature that it's difficult to move quickly, but also, you know, they can't really. Um, and one of the reasons is, and I'll say, you know, I, there's nothing, the institutions are not evil. They're not out there trying to hurt Australians on purpose. It's just sometimes a byproduct of their business short term business model, which is very shareholder returns focused, which yeah. is perhaps not well suited to a professional industry right mm. and so you know if you look back it's not that they want to go out and hurt people it's that they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on dealer groups with the promise to shareholders that they could then flog all these products now that hasn't ended up being the case yeah and it's very hard for them to go back to their shareholders and say hey remember godfrey pembroke that we spent a hundred million dollars of your money on that thing's actually worthless and also <laughs> genesis that collapsed that thing's actually worthless right so it's a very difficult thing to do because the value was always in the advice practice and in that client relationship but they made a bet saying these guys are going to be great salespeople for us and they were shit salespeople for them in the end because of faux and because of professionalism. God, I love your out, I love your external <laughs> like view of things and not but being super close to it. You're able to summarize a lot of, a lot of thoughts that we probably have in a lot more direct fashion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe because it's um you know, these things I've just heard because I see all the pain points, but I haven't been through that pain. So I think it's difficult. If you're in a dispute with your dealer group, I think it's difficult to get that kind of clarity of these people are screwing me. I'm just a pawn. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it, yeah. You, you, because you're used to, and also because very often the people you're dealing with in the institutions, the BDMs, the managers, they're great people. Yes, they you are. Know? And, they, yes. and they genuinely care about you. Yes. But the boardroom doesn't, mm. you know, and so that's where they take their orders from ultimately. 
Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's heading to a better place. And the smart institutions are realizing, hey, look, the jig's up on this. So you look at someone like NAB, um, and they're going around now to their top practices who they've been in disputes with for years over things like technology or where they're putting the money. And they're saying, hey, look, we get it. We'll help you get your own license. In some cases, they're even paying the legal fees Whoa. to help them get their own license. And they're saying, try and keep the fun with us if you can. You know, so that's a smart long-term bet. But if they're not doing that, it if they want to keep fighting them, well, it'll work out better for them than someone like an AMP or an IWF, I think, who if they keep with the old school model, they're just going to end up in court against their own advisors, which is just not fun for anyone. Right. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, yeah, they are being forced to kind of change. And that's because advisors have said, you know, we're not, we have to act in the best interest of our clients. What do you want to see come out of this Royal Commission? Yeah, look, I think I've been vocal for a while supporting a Royal Commission, which a lot of my readers don't agree with, and I get that. I think Stop they, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, they, when I get that, because I think that people have reason to be sceptical, right? Every Absolutely. inquiry that we've ever had, including the financial system inquiry, which was meant to be broad and was meant to have teeth, they've always it's ended up with very little outcomes of change. Um, and most of the focus has been on intermediaries, financial advisors, mortgage brokers, uh, stockbrokers. Right. And that's because they're easy targets for politicians, right? They don't give enough money to polit political parties. They're mm -hmm. small businesses. They're independent. Um, so they don't, they're not worth anything in the game of thrones, right? right. Whereas industry funds hugely powerful on one side of politics the big four banks very powerful on the other side so these are the two kind of cash cows that keep the whole compulsory superannuation world running and they both fund you know the two sides of government and the little guys just get screwed in the middle yeah they do and i think but the difference with the royal commission is pretty much every inquiry we've had even though there's been 40 or 50 of them they've all been run by politicians or mates of politicians it's all been part of a government infrastructure whereas this is the only thing that you know, under our legal system has actual guts to be separate um, and to go for people at the top. So I do think there's a risk that as it goes on, they might, you know, get cowardly and they might start looking at little fish. And, and look, it's it's legitimate to for the for ASIC to, um, you know, to ban someone who is a small business and has done something egregious, totally. But like very often, I think that's not where the problem in the industry lies. Mm. It's not these guys, you know, yep. it's, um, it's the, the, the crookedness of the system. So hopefully if we can get to some of that, I think it's going to be good. And what about some of the conversations you've had with the pollies down there? Yeah, so I was down there. It was actually pretty opportune. Like, I made it look very good on and calculated on social media, but I actually was already <laughs> on my way there to attend the um, IFAAA National Symposium, which was at Old Parliament House last Thursday night. And um, I got in the car at sort of 5.30, 6 in the morning, turned on the radio and heard this announcement was about to break. And about an hour later, my boss calls me. He said, "You should probably get to Canberra." I said, "I'm about, I'm almost at Goulburn, so it, it, um, it looked pretty, uh, it looked pretty cool." But you know, in the in the spirit of transparency, I'll, I'll tell you guys the truth. Um, but the um, so I got there, and it was a great time to be there. I just missed the announcement, but um, uh, so the Senate was sitting, the House wasn't. So I watched Question Time, and a lot of it was dominated by. Um, the Royal Commission, which was which was great for for us and for our readers to to be there at that time, and then had a couple of interviews. So I spoke to um, Senator Wacker Williams, who um, a lot of your listeners probably know because he's been um, you know around the industry for some time. Really good guy. I mean, he's one of these nationals that just kind of truly. Um, acts in the interests of his constituency, right? And a lot of people in the city don't like him, but that means he's doing his job as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so... <laughs> that was you the your life by that, that yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'm Being a journalist, mate, that has to be your level of what's considered being good at your job. That's right. Sometimes I wish I could hang out with Wacker in the country because some people in Circular Key don't like me. But, um, I, um, but he, he, he's been pushing for this for 10 years within the Liberal Party room. 
And um, it was really, you know, politics that got them there in the end. I mean, they kind of stuffed this election in Queensland um, and the Nationals and the Liberals are uh, more than a coalition in Queensland. They're actually one party now. So the Nationals came to them at the federal level and said, hey, you just stuffed this election. We lost some of our mates. Um, we need this Royal Commission. And so for Senator Williams, he's been pushing for this for years. It was a big win for him. He was very happy about it. He was very adamant to me that the terms of reference will look at the big four banks and at industry funds and, and really at the, right. the big, um, you know, systemic problems. Um, and the FSI said it was going to do that, but they got a guy who used to run the Commonwealth Bank in charge. And I don't think that he's corrupt. Some sort of conflict. Yeah, it's not that he's corrupt. He just doesn't get it. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's yeah, the yeah. one who made all these decisions that's caused all these problems. Yeah. Right? So he's not exactly. hardly going to say... Um, the bankers for the last two decades have made decisions that aren't in the interests of consumers, you know, <laughs> and when it's not. literally him yeah. who did it. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we, I think we had Bernie Ripple at our event. Oh, um, he's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. So it would have been great to have you up there. That was our Brisbane event. Yeah. And, um, one of the guys in the audience was just ripping into him. He was good, mate. They're yeah. good, aren't they? They're yeah. always good when they leave parliament. <laughs> They're always, when you see them on the speaking circuit, you remember how they got there in the first place because they're yeah. always likable people. Yeah. Um, you can see how their consumer, you know, their communities rallied around yeah, them yeah. in the early days. Then they get in there and this party system just means they're not allowed to talk. Mm. Um, and it's a bit like, I guess, the corporate world um, where, you know, there are lots of great executives in financial services who are experts in their field, um, you know, great people but can't say anything in public where at least that opens a, opens an opportunity for us, doesn't it? So. Yeah. Yep. So getting your crystal ball out, what, what do you think will actually come out of the, the Royal Commission? Oh, look, it's hard to say. I mean, if, if it's, it's going to take a year, which is not a, lo a lot of time. They tell me by Royal Commission standards. Mm. Um, but generally, I mean, the, the rule for, or the justification for a Royal Commission is meant to be systemic illegality. So wow. that's why they've pushed it off for a long time because they've said there hasn't been that. And I think the money laundering stuff at Commonwealth Bank kind of pushed it over the edge into saying, okay, this is now systemic and it's very illegal. Um, so they, um, so I think that it will uncover some of the orders that happened from the top. And that's what really hasn't been gotten to. And I think that's what's really important is that sometimes I look at some of these aligned advisors, particularly those that um, are not uh, self-owned, but are, you know, part of these, you know, uh, self-employed channels mm. um, that all the big banks and AMP have. And um, you see them getting banned. And sometimes I ask myself, are they bad advisors or are they good employees? Ooh. Right, it's like where does your where does your that, Emily make sure you write that as the <laughs> top quote for the summary of that podcast. But it's I mean it's tough because if you're employed, I'm sure you've got your professional ethics, but you've also got a responsibility to your employer. Mm. And if your boss is giving a KPI saying push this much product to these types of people, then you're just kind of doing your job right. So yeah, you sure you should you know always abide by your professional ethics. But I've got some sympathy for those people who are at that intermediary level. Yeah. Um, who are kind of following orders in the same way that a soldier who kills someone in battle um, is not a murderer, right? Um, yeah. So I think that um, the higher up it goes up the chain, um, the better. Because I, And it's not just, you know, partly, of course, the media has an invested interest in these types of things. Oh. You know, they want these kinds of things to go on because it's news, because it airs things that need to come out. But also, I think in this case, consumers have a right to know. Um, and you look at some of the victims of financial crimes who are thinking, you know, this crooked advisor, he's, he's, he's a crook, he's in jail now and he's to blame, when maybe he's not to blame, maybe the system is to blame and, and someone who's sitting on an island and, 
you know, docking his boat at Seaforth, and, and, and he's the one who's made the made the rules. I yeah. so wish you were a part of the Royal Commission. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sitting in the audience pretty happily, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and so do you do you see any any uh, changes coming out of it that directly impact the day-to-day for advisors? Because I, I suppose, like, you know, we've recently come through the LIF and the raft of changes mm. that have happened in the last few years. Looking forward, it seems that there's not there's nothing too big on the horizon, which is a scary time because it thinks you, you think that something's got to be coming, right? Which I think is good, right? Because there's enough regulations that advisors have spent the last three, four years trying to change their business models to get to terms with. So I don't Absolutely. think there'll be anything new, um, except that there may be additional scrutiny on the whole business of vertically integrated um, dealer groups. So for advisors who are in those models, that might be a bit of a tension, but as we've talked about earlier, the push is going away from that anyway. So most of those advisors are already thinking in their head, can I operate the way I want to where I am? And that's mm. you know a yes or no that they need to go through. Um, and, um, and so I think that pretty much there won't be too much day-to-day. For me, the big um, sleeping giant in terms of what will have an impact on advisors day-to-day is more the best interest duty um, and how the courts are going to mm. look at that. So we've just had maybe a month or so ago this the first um, judgment on the best interest duty, which was the first kind of sign of where it's going to go. But the way that our legal system works, right, we've got to look at what the judges say and each case will set its own precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we're really focusing because we want to try and draw out for our audience how the best interest duty looks in practice. We know how it looks in legislation, but yeah. how judges look at yeah. it is way more important. So, for example, um, a few legal experts I've spoken to think it's entirely plausible that a judge who knows the law but doesn't really care about financial services and you know because that's not their job to help advisors grow the way it is ours right yes um so they may well rule that the best interest duty and an approved product list are inconsistent totally of course they are well if if they are that's a major problem for not just aligned guys that's even your most hardcore totally. independent is operating under an apl because if he doesn't he can't get insurance right? i think it's common sense that they conflict well, sure. If you if you look at it from a pure you know philosophical point of mm. view, then um, possibly yeah, have put, placing any restrictions on your advice yeah um, is is problematic, I guess, in Absolutely. terms of, of being completely open. Um, and again, it's government that causes the problem, right? Because they're the one who say you must be insured. That's under yeah. law. So this is the farce of the business world in Australia. The politicians say you have to be insured. They don't provide insurance though. They try and force private insurance companies to provide you insurance. Those private insurance companies have their own shareholders and they don't want to provide insurance mm. unless it's in their interest, which is totally legitimate. Yeah. So you've got this crazy system where everyone has to jump to what these private sector insurers <gasps> want and that's what's creating you... the Well, model. I think that the crazy system comes from the fact that that we're required to have APLs on a dealer group level. Like yeah. if a product's good for one person and it's acceptable and it's like considered good advice or okay advice, mm. why on earth would that be different for anybody else? Like I understand that there needs to be quality controls and there needs to be approval. there needs to be administration things. But this is one of the things that we've been talking about uh, for a long time is, you know, all the top insurance companies on there, they've all got good products. I don't see how anyone can say that that a product isn't good, like from the, the top tier retail insurance course, provided but- by the insurance. 
but that's not what APLs are for, right? They're, 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 for, they're, they're meant to look like they're for liability, but they're actually to stop people from selling competitor products. Correct. Yeah. 100%. It's a restriction mechanism. Yeah. Um, and it's a very effective one. So I get that argument of, you know, we have to look at the research, but frankly, I trust any advisor I know over the guys who set research committees in the large institutions any day. Thank you. So, yeah. you know, if, if as long as you've got your professional ethics, and, and sometimes it's hard, particularly for independents, and I think that is... You know, there are legitimate research processes that goes on in large groups. It's one of the things you get in a dealer group. Agreed. But the but the cynic in me thinks half the time they're being told this one's obviously no good because it's because it, because that's it not, is that, good. But that's not the cynic. <laughs> that that no. again, that's super common sense. I, that's why I love getting you on these rants, man. Like it's all common sense. Not ranting. It's just summer. We're taking it easy. Just... <laughs> Don't encourage in the rant. Is it? <laughs> but what about the the inefficiencies that are generated from hundreds of licensees all having their own APLs? Mm. Like we talk about the cost that's to serve right. and the burdens on advice businesses. Why on earth shouldn't we have one? You know, um, ASIC approved, ASIC APRA approved, ASIC APRA approved, APL, and yeah, then it's okay. and then it cuts that time out and that cost for for all. Well, the they people. want to centralise all this other stuff, but they don't want to take on the stuff that's going to be useful to us. Well, that's yeah. the other thing that's really interesting. I mean, I think um, with ASIC's new funding model, I think a lot of things will change. And one What's of them that? is sorry, I don't know. What well, that so is. ASIC they're moving to a user pays model where you guys are now funding ASIC instead of it being funded like a government department, ah. right? So it'll be like Finra in the states where everyone chips in as part of their right. license fees. So you're you're out of the you've been out of the game a little while, writing books and doing podcasts. You're not paying license fees anymore, Clayton. So it's nice for some. Well, I don't pay them either, but my readers do. The insurance side of things, I think, is really interesting because you've got we've had this shift where like. Uh, us as a profession has been solidified, enshrined in law. Mm. There's all this, like traditionally what professions would want, a barrier to entry put around our profession. And like half advisors don't even care about that yeah. <laughs> because it's just placed a whole lot of other restrictions. But the benefit that other professions like the accounting have got out of it is that centralized insurance piece and the public liability piece. Do you think we can move towards that to make things more efficient, at least in that risk management standpoint? I think we can, but the problem is that there's 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 the Gen X and Y advisors who are already moving to that model, and it's probably what they've always wanted to do. Mm. Then you've got the advisors who are already, you know, professionals, if you want to put it that way, who are highly educated, you know, work to their own ethical framework, not beholden to, you know, incentives or what the dealer group says. And, and then you've got a large, large number who have always been financial product salesmen. Now, my problem with what happened with FOFA is that you, instead of saying, let's be more honest about what people are, they said, everybody has to be a professional. And if you're not a professional, you're out. Right? And mm. personally, I think that it was the two main associations who are really pushing that because it's not in the FPA and AFA's interests to split their Member membership base. down. Yeah. They want 10,000 members. They don't want 3,000 members. Well, and so their that, role is to represent their members. And if you look at, if, if they've got over 50% that are a certain type of advisor or they, they do things a bit differently. Yeah. They're it's hard for they've them. got to represent them. Well, that's good at the same hard. time. Got they've got to hard. represent them. But I mean, I don't want to, um, you know, I smashed them on your last podcast, so I'll give them a break this time. But, <laughs> you know, in the old day, the, the model has changed. And that's why there's a lot of tension, particularly from older advisors, because these associations were started as representative bodies, mm. uh, as lobby groups to advocate to government what a certain industry was thinking and feeling. And now it's almost switched because of their business model. They are now kind of advocating government policy to their members. Yeah. And they're right. like this government surrogate who does deals with lobbyists and tells its members what's what and, and, and the you know the public's going to agree with you if you listen to us. So It's caused it, a bit of friction. It's caused a lot of friction and I get that. I also get the argument, you know, a lot of critics of our publication will say, well, you're appeasing these guys who are just salespeople. 
I just think that it would have been a lot cleaner if you just had both and they were clearly yeah. delineated. You're either a financial planning professional or you're a financial product salesperson. You don't need to ban the model. You just need to ban people who are actually salespeople pretending Absolutely, not to be. Absolutely, yeah. There's no reason to get rid of those that sale model. Yeah, it was a really interesting analogy. I saw um, uh, Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre speak recently, and he gave an analogy, and he talked about in the Middle Ages, right, um, when the surgeon profession started emerging. And um, at the time, it was all monks that performed all surgeries. And suddenly there was this edict out of the Vatican, which said no monk is allowed to perform any more surgery because bloodletting is sinful. So suddenly every qualified surgeon in Europe was not allowed to perform surgery anymore. So they had to quickly skill up people. And the first people to come forward were the barbers. Oh. Because the barbers were skillful with, with blades, but right. they weren't educated like the monks were, right? And so for the next several hundred years, they had two medical professions. They had the new professionals who were being trained by monks and, and were the professional surgeons, and they wore long robes. And then you had the barber surgeons who wore only half robes. And so they were distinguished to the public. It was all disclosed who's who, but they allowed both to thrive. And that's what I think should have happened is you've got the barber surgeons who are your financial product salespeople, your yeah. riskies, yeah. who are operating on investment commissions and mum yeah. and dad know what they're getting. Yes. Mm. And then you've got the professionals who are paid fee for service, who aren't beholden to APLs or, or any incentives of any kind. Um, and I think there's room for both. I think it was vested Absolutely. interests yeah. that said, let's just cut all these people out. And I understand why they're pissed off about it. Totally. And I think that that's one of the, the big uh, problems with for consumers of advice as well, that it's very confusing. Well, it must be very confusing as to who is an advisor because I'm an advisor, every, like, you know, tens of thousands of advisors in Australia, but um, they a, an advisor might only do life insurance or yeah. they might only do investments or they might only do, you know, I met I was talking to this awesome advisor out of WA just does estate planning um, facilitation, that mm. sort of stuff. So it's confusing. Someone says, I want to um, I want to see, see or use a financial advisor or their friend says, go and speak to my financial advisor. But mm. what are they getting, right? It's not clear. And it's I totally. don't know, this is something that I've thought about a lot is to, it should be some way that it is... Delineated, um, totally. That it is clear. Yeah, and look... As far as I'm concerned, there's no such thing as a financial advisor. There are various business models, various specializations, and people should really lean into that. I really truly believe it's these vested interests, these CFP sellers who who who, who want there to be a such thing as a financial planner. Now, the reality is there's not. There's different business. How can a risk specialist in Wollongong and a guy who charges 50 grand a year for advice in Martin Place, how are they the same profession? They're not. And they're both equally valid. Um, but the consumer yes. needs to know that they're different, right? Definitely. So what's the solution? <laughs> well, I mean, you're not going to wind it back now, but at least you, you put... Pre the solution is, um, unfortunately, the guys who don't want to play ball and want to operate under the old model have to leave um, and everyone else has to professionalise. And I, I get the idea that that's good for the optics of the industry, but the reality is all the businesses I know that are looking at the long term, great businesses, and, and I understand why they're doing this, but they're all either already servicing high net worth individuals or they're trying to. Um, and they're moving in that direction. Is my business not good? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Well, no, I mean, that's the other side, and we'll talk about that. Back to the drawing board. There is some really cool stuff starting to emerge, really, you know, aimed at the mass market using technology and so on, and I do think it's feasible, but it's only feasible for the ones who are looking real long-term. Mm. Right? For the guys who are supporting a family, five earning 500 years. grand, and yeah, suddenly yeah. not, that's, hard, that's yeah. not feasible for them to start experimenting with little fintechs and completely upping their business model. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's a shame because it's, from a public policy perspective, it really did, I think, rob a lot of people from advice. And um, 
I think in the industry, there's this perception that everybody out there thinks that they're crooked. And I don't think that's the number one misperception. I think the number one is that people think financial advice is for rich people. And that didn't used to be true, but it's becoming more true. And that's a shame with the regulations. So, um, yeah, I don't know how you fix it, but people need financial products. Um, and they also need advice, but you, you know. Well, they could benefit, they could certainly benefit from advice, but yeah, I think it's just, how do you do it in a way that's, that's profitable for the business, valuable for the, for the customer. Hopefully technology allows them to do it in the longer term. You know, I'm really encouraged by some of the stuff that you guys are doing. Um, I love what Adele Martin's doing with trying to do, um, one to many. So she's trying to do financial fitness classes. Um, now under the current laws, that's really problematic. Um, uh, but sorry, (laughs) yeah, I mean, no, she hasn't done anything wrong yet. She's trying to push this through. Um, uh, you know, she's trying to advocate for something that needs to happen. She hasn't done any of these classes yet, I'm sure. But the, um, but, but you have to basically not talk any product then, right? Which is fine if you're a budgeting and cash flow specialist like she is. But if you're managing people's money, you can't really do that. So the laws are not set up to achieve the goal that they're meant to, which is to see more people in advice, right? Mm. Um, or that's what they say the goal is. It makes me makes I, me wonder. I, th- I think if you look at it from a historical point of view, back in the day, a financial plan was a handwritten A4 bit of paper. Mm. Um, and then uh, conflicts around investments and insurances created the need for this massive SOA. So it ended up being uh, h- how can dealer groups continue to provide what they used to provide with a one pager but just now it sounds far more official because now it's 50 pages and then the the you know commissions have been stripped out of uh, investments it's only a matter of time before in commissions are fully stripped out of insurances mm. then i'm really really going to question considering there won't be any quote unquote perceived conflicts right let's say there's no commissions received on anything how can you argue against the fact that everything is in the client's best interest? Because the, the, the advisor has no motivation, not even a chance of motivation to not do whatever's in the best interest in the client. And so if we achieve that point, we don't really need an SOA anymore. We can go back sure. to the one page handwritten. Do, do you th- can you perceive a conflict still? Uh, yeah, it's going to merge into a, more of a regulatory conflict where you're forced to do something by regulation yeah. that you don't want to do. You don't think it's in the best interest of the client. And Give me give me an example. Oh, you don't have to ask me. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's more on the client experience side of things. So it's sort of like the client... Like the client wants to have a good experience, they don't want to go through certain hoops. Yeah, opt in fee disclosure. But that, exactly. That's my point. We can get rid of so much shit mm. it, as soon as um, as soon as the insurances don't pay commissions as well. Because there's and and I don't have a major thing against insurance uh, insurance commissions, but there is still the argument that it that it can be conflicted. Totally, but I mean the the conflict still exists with or without a commission. I mean they just do it in a roundabout way, right? I mean um, it used to be that the um, APL was where they do all the restricting. Yes. Now APLs need to be brought, yes. so they just do it in the manage in the model portfolio, right? Um, so they just they just move the hoops. Yeah. Um, okay. And so in the large groups, they might not. Um, you know, charge commissions anymore because that's commissions better. At least that's disclosed. What they do now is they say, you know, this product is the only one that's research approved, so you have to use it. Or even worse, they say take ten grand off your license fee if you push X Y Z. Right. So there's all these. That's kind definitely of, illegal. 
Um, it, I'm pretty sure after Fofita, they are that 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 would, it groups, wouldn't, it, they have they have a balanced no, scorecard. No, no, yeah, no, that's no, not no, a direct commission. It would which, be illegal. Which one element? I'm that's, pretty. I'm pretty sure that. Nah, that would only be illegal if you were trying to comply with Section 923A. If you're an independent, then you can't have a conversation with a BDM um, where he takes you out for lunch and and you know takes money off your dealer fee or whatever. Right. If you're operating in a, in a large corporate dealer group, that goes on all the time. Um, now, yeah, right. now going forward, whether or not you'd be in breach of the best interest duty is a separate question, but mm. they've got pretty good lawyers in these institutions and they'll, they'll find a way to make it look like um, it's uh, research and liability and safety, Education, safety first. Marketing. Yeah, safety first is always what um, government's pushing as well and it's what got us into this mess. So. Well, if, if you could um, just... We've got 15 minutes of our sleep. If you, if, if someone from the Royal Commission was listening, what advice would you, how would you like to see? How would you run the Royal Commission, I don't know. If, I don't know if Ken Hayne wants advice from a journal. I'm going to say, keep it spicy. Uh, heads, let the heads roll. Um, we want to Make see a daily, time. I want to see Lots a daily proclamation. I want to see him up there on IFA podcast, like the Ayatollah Khomeini, just screaming would like, and Would you spraying. like spikes outside the front? Yeah, they'll just put, put heads there. That's a bit vicious. Okay. I don't know about that. Okay. What would you like? We'll do one for the industry funds and, and for the retail funds. What would you like to see change within the retail environment? I think, look, going back to what we were just talking about, I don't think that commission payments, for example, are a problem. I think this industry has always had a disclosure problem. It's never had a business model problem. It's just people pretending to do things or but be things But it's been proven that not. disclosures don't improve anything. Yeah. Well, Is it that depends. the thing? Because it's like there's, there's so Disclosures don't prove anything when you put it in like page 50 of an SOA. Yes, yes. But they make a difference when you've got um, Smith's financial planning and really that's just an arm of a large corporation and the logo's not present. Right. right, so it's a matter of um, you know really obvious and explicit disclosure will definitely help, um, but what that requires for a lot of the industry is to have really honest conversations about who they are and what they specialize in, and this is one of the most refreshing things I saw in the states that is starting to happen here, but you see people and advisors. I spend a lot of time with American advisors, and um, they have really honest conversations, and I think they've got a cool sales culture over there that allows them to do this. Mm. But I remember seeing um, one advisor who's very much a you know client-centric. Um, he is very passive in terms of his investment outlook. He does use a lot of ETFs, outsources to fund managers, as a lot of advisors do. Most advisors are not actually managing the money. Um, and he, had, he has this uh, process where he takes the client in, and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm on your side. I, I don't know anything about investments. Steve's my fund manager. He knows about investments. I care about you. He doesn't. That's right? a and great so American accent, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you've practiced. It's a nice little Baltimore accent. But the, uh, the, um, the, you know, it, it's, it's this really honest value proposition, which is, um, and then he still turns around and asks them, well, you should still pay me 10 grand for the client trust part. Yeah. Right. We pay Steve separately for managing the money, and this is how it works. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, if you have a real honest system where you can hone in on what it is. I mean, the value has always been in the advice and in the trust and in having someone hold your hand, right? And and know your goals and care about your children and all that um, is where the value is. Um, so I think we are transitioning to a world where people know how to charge and ask for money for that. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that that happens, the better. And also on the flip side, from a liability point of view, one of the reasons that it's always the advisor that goes, 
gets in trouble and no one further up the chain is because he hasn't disclosed all the people up the chain. Good point. Right. So if you bring the fund manager or the the, the custodian or whoever or the, the platform provider into the picture with the client much earlier and explain to them how it works, then if it ever goes to court, which hopefully it doesn't, but if it ever does, at least the client has an understanding of how the whole game works mm. instead of thinking that their advisor is responsible for the whole thing mm. and then timber court collapses, obviously it's your advisor's fault. Um, so I think that... Well, in um, that case, it probably was. Well, I mean, you know, you look at some of those big agribusiness schemes, they were getting five stars from Morningstar, five stars from all the research houses, you know, oh. S&P. You know, that's how it works. And if you're an independent advisor, no dealer group, no research, who are you going to go off, right? You're going to go off the, the one that pays 30% research. commission? Possibly. You're, you're more cynical than I. You're more cynical than I, Clayton. No, I think, um, that can't be. <laughs> look, no doubt some of them would have been going for those incentives um, and, and certainly that's the case. But these independent research providers, I think, have a, have a role to play as well um, and, and we're, you know, we're giving ticks all over the place for money. Um, and so the, the point is, whatever the Royal... I think if the Royal Commission um, gets to the kind of heart of, of the problem, and for me the heart of the problem is compulsory superannuation, right? Because it's not, not that it's bad in theory necessarily, but... You know, it was it was seen to be this great idea by Paul Keating. Get everyone engaged with their finances, um, and and they'll save for their retirement. Um, but what that's meant as a result is that because it's compulsory and there's just this huge pool of money that people aren't engaged with, don't even know about, don't understand that it's theirs, and they can't touch it. It allows both sides of 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 the business world. You know, the retail funds and the industry funds just to have this huge cash cow to play with that people don't truly understand. And because it's compulsory, they don't take any risk. And wherever you don't take any risk, consumers tend to lose out. It's almost like they need this, like a super engagement tool that makes people engage <laughs> with their money. Absolutely. That's why I advise a podcast. That's what, um, yeah. And I think that, so I think that anything, if, if you can get onto the front pages of not just the Finn and IFA, if you can get onto the front pages of, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and, um, and, and the Telly and the Herald Sun, with issues from the financial system, then it will force people to engage in the way that the CBA scandal forced people to engage and, and did change things. So I think that that would be a good outcome of the Royal Commission would be if people start to realise some of these um, some of these things. And if you're sitting in an industry fund, um, your member money, which is basically meant to go into your pocket for your retirement, is being used for political purposes that you may or may not support. Mm. That's you know that's pretty much corruption. It's crony capitalism at least. If not corruption, um, and it's um, it's nasty, right? People have a right to know about it. So, um, so the Royal Commission, the results are, are looking like 12, 12 months away. No other significant uh, regulatory change on the horizon. Oh, uh, you never know. Well, what do you see? What do you see playing out twenty eighteen? Yeah, as I say, I, th I think it's going to move more from um, more from Parliament and more to the courts in terms of where we're going to be looking and and some of these cases. The Westpac ASIC dispute is huge over the um, definition of general advice. Um, that could have really big implications. Um, but when you got ASIC versus Westpac, that's probably a case that's going to go for a while, right? There's a, there's a few barristers' families doing well out of that. But um, I think that um, uh, that's where I will be looking. And then also putting all this stuff to, to one side, the other thing that, that I'm really watching, as you guys are, is just this emerging technology space on a much more positive note um, because I think that that's, that's really the enabler is, you know, we've, we've spoken about all the, the horrible things but i think the opportunity then is if you are going to professionalize if you are going to have all this compliance you've got to find tools to help you engage those clients as cost effectively as you can 
Yeah. And I'm really bullish on some of the stuff that's coming out there. Mm. So um, we'll keep a close eye on that as well. I think that the uh, the technology piece is a big one because pressure on you know margins from all ends. Advise, uh, consumers want advice for cheaper. Advisors obviously want to run profitable businesses as well as valuable um, services for their clients. But uh, yeah, I think the t the tech is a theme that we're seeing over and over again, and we see that a lot in the in the XY group as well. People mm -hmm. using technology, and I think that the ones that can join all the all the pieces of the puzzle together are the ones that will that will do well. Absolutely. And I think it's that same trend towards independence. I think it's part of a broader, um, you know, taking back of sovereignty over your own affairs. That's basically, I think, the, the number one trend that's going on. And technology is a huge part of that. Um, and it's, it's probably the number one thing that I hear. It's not actually with a lot of the Insto guys who are leaving and they often call us and say, what do I do next? And I say, that's that's not what I do, but you know, speak to Steve Brendel or speak to someone that can help you out, pick a dealer group or get a license or whatever. Um, but they'll call us and I'll say, so why are you leaving? And it's not actually a lot of the time that they feel, um, some of them are worried about the best interest duty, but um, a lot of them are just aren't allowed to use this this new technology. And that's not just Instos, that's also pretty much all dealer groups. Yep. Because the, more, the business model of the dealer groups, as soon as you took away commissions, I mean, one of the only ways that you can get uh, profitability or scale if you're a dealer group is to do deals with a software provider and mandate software use, right? Um, now, if you start to do that, then you're robbing advisors of exactly what they want right now, which is the ability to choose that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that, um, you know, it's good to see, and you see it in the XY group, you see it in my comments section on IFA as well. Um, there is this willingness to experiment with the new technology that wasn't happening a year ago. A year ago, I was getting up on stage and, you know, I'd put top technology providers up there and a few of the audience would be kind of saying, oh, well, this is, this is silly. I don't choose my, I've got my software provider and I'm fine with that for the next 30 years. And I've been fine with it for the last 30. Um, and, um, you know, I don't want to hear any of this stuff. And I think that that has changed. I think a much larger number of the market is shopping now. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah. I think it's good. Just even that mindset, some of them are going to be duds. Some of them are going to be winners, right? With these new emerging technologies. But, um, I think just that mindset of having a crack, um, seeing if it works for your business, playing with your, your value proposition, you know, we're seeing what works for you and your client base. I think that's really healthy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think that part of it as well is like we had the, the, um, Silicon Valley on Bridge Street mm. event in, in Sydney. Yeah, I heard it went great. Yeah. And, uh, made headlines. And they were talking, yeah, made the, the, just in all the important publications. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were talking about, you know, for these days for an app or a software, a piece of software or, or a tool to be successful has to be a 10 times improvement on what was there before. Mm. It's right. not like the new, there's, there's nothing new. Well, you know, with, with some, uh, most of the time it's not a new uh, type of software. It's an improvement on a previous one, mm. but now the difference is, getting so big between the incumbent and you know what's possible that i think it's forcing people that they they need to really be on top of that to absolutely um if they if they want to be able to drive the efficiencies that they need to to run the business the way that they want yeah totally and i think back to adrian's point i do think one of the problems for the tech providers i mean they get a hard time and i think it's totally legitimate for the consumers of these products <clears throat> to expect good service right that's all sure. of, that's this whole process if you're going to take back purchasing power make decisions that's part of the fun thing is making them work for you um but i do think that for the tech providers they're hamstrung to a certain extent by the compliance thing um mm. uh, to you know compared to in other countries right because you look at america and all the tech providers and all the advisors they're talking about client engagement they're talking about generational wealth transfer they're looking at that long term how do you 
create stickiness in your with your clients. And advisors here would love to think about that, but they're so busy writing these SOAs as you talk about, or mm. or you know sending disclosure documents or whatever it is, um, complying with these laws mm. that um, sadly that client engagement piece doesn't tend to be number one. Um, hopefully that'll shift as people transition, you know, but, um, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a problem for the tech providers because even the ones who want to focus on client engagement, they're kind of compliance tools first and foremost, Mm. because that's what their consumers are telling them is the most important thing. Well, the good thing about that shopping and what Ben was saying is that there's going to be more people asking the right questions and less complacency on both sides, tech and the consumers of tech. Yeah, definitely. And as the consumer gets less complacent about what they're being delivered, you're going to get that change. That yeah, totally. And it's, like it's, it's heading to an open market, which mm. people, you know, before I wrote about this industry, you look at financial services and Wall Street and that whole world and you kind of think, wow, that's got to be the, um, you know, the bastion of capitalism and, and open markets. It's not. The whole thing is predicated <laughs> on tide distribution, doing what people say, um, yeah. not making your own decisions. It's ridiculous. It's not capitalistic at all, right? And I think it is moving to this system where um, people are, looking to to make decisions and and providers have got a much higher burden um, as they should. So, but I think that's healthy on both the fun side and on the technology side. It's moving to just an an more open market. Um, But for a lot of the incumbents, that's a problem Um, because for a dealer group, for example, an open market doesn't work for you because there's no natural demand for a dealer group. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I can't, I want to go buy an AFSL today. That's going to be (laughs) a lovely purchase that improves my life, right? They only exist because of an act of parliament. And there's plenty of good dealer groups out there who are great people, but I don't have that much sympathy for the fact that they're under pressure, frankly, because it's a product that has no natural demand. Yep. And if which is really different to a financial advice practice or a technology provider, yep. where there's an obvious client, an obvious consumer who actually wants your product and you're actually making their life better. Yeah. So it's if all because of the, the the way that they've structured the the compliance regime for advice. It is. It is. And so you know, it's not the dealer groups to blame. But if you're running a business that is only in existence because of an act of parliament, then an act of parliament can take away your business. Yeah. And that's a risky shaking for a business to be on. And um, and just to wrap up, mate, uh, USA G'day. Yeah. Let, 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 let's fill us in. Uh, where do we buy it? Uh, Amazon. So uh, if you go to usagday.com, I got in early with that URL. So um, you can go there. <laughs> Obviously go to ifa.com.au first, because uh, <laughs> otherwise I'd be in breach of, of my own ethical obligations. Um, but yeah, I did. I wrote a book. So um, a lot of your listeners will know I spent two years in the States. I was doing correspondence for, for our title um, uh, on the advice space and also across some of the other industries. Um, but in my spare time, I was also kind of following the election um, and going state to state. Um, so yeah, I've written a book based on all the blogs that I wrote at the time. Um, it's, um, yeah, I think it, it basically, it gives an Aussie perspective on, on kind of what went down. And I think the uniqueness was I spent a lot of time in, um, you know, the deep South and the Midwest and places, great barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, in fact, I've always said we should have an IFA conference in, you know, sort of rural Texas. I reckon it'll go off. (laughs) You guys, some of you just went to Dallas. You were there, weren't you, Benny? Yeah, mate. The great state of Texas. Wonderful place. Great barbecue. Um, and so I I was around a lot of people who ultimately voted for, for Trump. Um, whereas a lot of the journos who were in DC, I spent six months in DC as well. So I was able to see that side, but it's such a bubble, right? I mean, it's worse than, than the North Shore of Sydney. And, um, <laughs> it's, um, so if you're a journal and you're in DC or New York, like you have no idea how normal people live. You haven't been in a shopping mall ever and shopping malls and drive through lanes is where Americans live. All right. Uh, so, um, I was able to 
get a pretty good handle on these people. And they're not crazy. They're not nutters, right? They had legitimate reasons to vote the way they did, even though I probably wouldn't have voted that way. Um, I think the media um, reported it really wrong because, frankly, they just didn't want the guy to win. They didn't like him. They didn't like his values. They didn't like what he stand for. Um, and so they reported it as the it's orange not steak salesman. Yeah, yeah, and I get that. Like I don't like him, but I'm I'm not from the Midwest, and I don't come from a you know a, f- a factory town that's closed down. You know, so my values don't really matter. And that's um, the journalism I tried to put to that project was you know what are the people saying? How are they going to vote? Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I don't write a lot about financial services in the book. There's a couple of articles that touch on fintech and the rise of that, particularly in Austin, Texas, where I was working for a while. Um, and also when I was in Silicon Valley, I had a lot of exposure to fintech stuff there. But um, a lot of the Americans that I met were you know, investment advisors and just because that was the daily work I was doing, I was going to their conferences. And so it, the book was impacted by trends in financial services. Um, uh, and I think that you know a lot of those trends are the same trends, right? Mm. A lot of what's happening in our industry in Australia, where you've got the kind of the old guard riskies who, who's livelihoods being taken away and they're pissed off and then you've got the people who are already professionals clapping about it um you know it's not dissimilar to what's going on in the states or in politics here in terms of a widening chasm between you know elites and and regular folks and i think that's something that a lot of industries are going through um and the broader voting public so yeah usagoday.com and then and then then finally uh the ifa What, what are you looking forward to there yeah, we've got plenty of stuff going on in the year ahead. Um, so we, uh, Advisor Innovation Summit, will be back on the road. Uh, first up, though, in March, we've Hopefully got... Hopefully you get some better speakers this year. <laughs> Is that you? You don't want to come back? No? <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty to talk about. Well, there'll be, there'll be some sort of XY presence. You can you can be sure of that. Um, and um, so March, we're going on uh, the road show with IFA Business Strategy Day, which we do every year, um, which is very much aimed at kind of practice principles. Uh, we're focusing um, very much on self-licensing this year because because it's just this trend that's out there and a lot of people just don't have access to really frank information. There's a lot of great um, conferences that are in this space, a lot of great information and PD days, but a lot of them are run by people who can't call a spade a spade, right, because of the nature Mm. of their business model. And so that's what we try and do at our events is just kind of call it how we see it and give people a chance to speak freely and hopefully they... um, you know, get something out of it. So that roadshow is coming up, you know, plenty going on with the magazine. We've got the podcast, so we'll get you guys in um, to appear on the IFA show at some point. Benny was on it the other Check week, so yeah, might be a while a before he gets he comes back, but he did a great job. <laughs> that was good fun. <laughs> yeah, very good. So, yeah, it'll be, be a good year. There'll be no shortage of, of news around, that's for sure. Hell yes. All right, well, thank you very much for coming on, mate. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, Alex. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate.